Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. I'd rather be here today in the house of the Lord with each of you than in the best hospital I know. Amen? I'd rather be here. I'm glad that we're here. And for those of you that are joining us online, please know we are looking forward to having you come and we give you a hearty welcome. We are in a long series, 25 or 26 uh, messages now on the Sermon on the Mount. Many times over the years, I've just kind of went through them quickly. But uh, to be able just to slowly go through them and that allow the Holy Spirit to guide uh, the different directions we take has been a thrill to my soul. Today, the message theme is standing up wisely for the truth of God is a great thing. Booker T. Washington was a well-known 1800s educator and author. Booker T. Washington left a legacy, a sensible advocate for positive change. He also was a great lover of Scripture. He said this, he said, You never read in history of any great man whose influence has been lasting, who has not been a reader of the Bible. But I want to point out a specially powerful quote from Booker T. Washington that I think is very appropriate for what we're talking about. And here's what he said, a lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. And I say this morning that there has never been a greater need for truth standards than today, even if it seems like you're in the minority. The fact of the matter is pretty much everything in academia today, in the media, and frankly very much in the business world and the government world, is pretty much, for the most part, 180 degrees exactly opposite of both accuracy and actual facts. There is a desperate need for positive agents of change to do what they can to pull back a generation to the Word of God, to the truth of God, the Bible. But also, as our Lord said 2,000 years ago, there is a great need to do so wisely and prudently. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 5, as we're going to be reading in just a moment, Jesus said this, He said, Those who see clearly to cast the moat out of people's eyes. And that's what we need. We need people who see clearly. We have people whose minds are so cloudy and dark, but God wants us to see clearly. People who see clearly are those who can make a difference in this world. Handling truth is the theme of this section in the world's greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of us this morning might be able to sympathize with the fellow who received a call from his wife 
She was about ready to fly home from Europe. How's my cat? She asked. Dead. Oh, honey, don't be so honest, so blunt. Why didn't you break the news to me more slowly? You ruined my trip. What do you mean? You could have told me he was on the roof. And then when he called from Paris, you could have said he was acting sluggish. And then when I called from London, you could have said he was sick. And when I called from New York, you could have said he was at the vet. And then finally, when I arrived home, that's when you could have said he's dead. The husband had never been exposed to such protocol, but he was willing to learn. And he said, okay, I'll do better next time. By the way, she asked, how's mom? There was a long silence. Then he said, uh, she's on the roof. <laughs> well, this morning, you're going to hear the truth. And I hope it's not too blunt for you or honest. And so I pray that our hearts would be wrapped around this powerful, interesting, often misunderstood passage. And so would you join me? And I'm especially going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual ears to hear because some of the things we're going to hear is probably things you've never heard before. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you. Give us minds to hear, spiritualize, spiritual ears. Help us, Lord, not to just fall into the drone of this world. Oh, God, help us to be truth standards, those who have both the discernment and the wisdom to do so with a positive uh, mind. And we pray so. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Two millennia ago, our gracious Lord spoke to hundreds, maybe thousands, of wonderful Israelites on the Galilean mountainside. In these verses, he talked to them about the importance of many things in their life, about having great attitudes, about being the salt and the light in the community. He warned them of persecution that was bound to come. He talked to them about having a, a good moral conscience. And now he begins to change matters. And he said, through life, you're going to need to learn how to be a discerning Christian. Now, where have we been in chapter 7? In chapter 7, Jesus said, God is a righteous judge. God's very name is lawgiver. Therefore, we need to live with that in mind, that the God we serve this is a God of laws and a God of truth and a God of honesty. And he said, judge not, lest you be judged. And we reiterated to our mind how important it was to judge righteous judgment. Jesus wasn't saying don't judge. He was just simply saying don't judge in the wrong way. It is impossible to live without judging. We have to judge. We're always having to make decisions about the right way, the wrong way, the wise way, the foolish way. And there is a great need in our world today for people who are enlightened and not gullible. The Lord's point, don't just swallow everything. And I, he might have even looked over at the false religious leaders who were there glaring at him. He said, don't just fall and swallow everything they say, just because they have a religious garb on, or they sound real theological. Make sure that you validate everything that they say 
against the word of God. By the way, that is the gold standard. That is the original misinformation algorithm. Just measure it with the word of God. But then remember, in your response to that discernment, be measured and be merciful. Unlike these false teachers who will cancel you as quick as my mom used to say, you can say Jack Robinson, if you don't do exactly as they say. And then he switches gears. He said, now, we must not be judgmental. However, that doesn't mean that we must not stand for the truth of God. If we don't have truth, nothing gets healed. When I go to a doctor, I want truth. When I go to the mechanic, I want truth. I don't want someone to just say whatever. Nothing gets corrected unless people have the facts. It is absolutely vital for the healthy functioning of everything. Whether it be a family, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a business, whether it be a nation, society itself needs truth. And that's why these verses are truly God's uh, truth uh, monitor. And so let's look at verses 3 through 6. And we're going to read it out loud to begin with. And then we'll go through these verses. I believe that God will speak to your heart as he has mine. All right, ready to begin. Let's read them out loud. Verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and they turn and rend you. It was my distinct privilege to become an assistant pastor at the tender age of 21 down in Southern California, Pomona. In fact, we have one family that's here that actually knew me back then and still follow me around all these years later. Since 23, I was 23, not 1923. Since I was 23, I know it may seem like since 1923, but since I was 23 years old, I have been the pastor here at the Bible Baptist Church and now the home church, Bible Baptist. However, before I was a pastor, I actually had several jobs, one of which I was a lifeguard. I had gotten my WSA certificate, and I worked at a local pool. Now, as far as I remember, only one time did I ever have the occasion to rescue anyone. I always tried to stay alert, constantly scanning the waters. Well, one day... I saw a man floating, spread eagle, not moving a muscle, face down in the shallow end. Oh, I was just freaked out. I jumped into action, dove in and grabbed him, only to find out he was just totally relaxing. <laughs> I practically gave that guy a heart attack. Needless to say, he was not happy with me. Now, the reason for the story is this. While that was my job for that summer, 
It was more than that. When you're a lifeguard, it is more than a job. It is a moral duty to save a life if you can. I bring up that story to say that really each of us, in a sense, are moral lifeguards. When we see people drowning in misinformation and misbelief, it is our responsibility to jump in and to try to save them. Sometimes they won't like that. And other times they maybe actually speak out against you. James, the brother of our Lord, said it very wisely in James chapter 5, verse number 20. He said, let him, that which is he that converteth a sinner from the error of his ways, shall save a soul from death. A moral lifeguard. And maybe, just maybe, will rescue a life for eternity. By the way, let me just say that is the motivating factor behind all that we do here at the home church. All the expenses, the great expenses, the time, the money that we have here. And like this great coming Freedom Fest next weekend, we feel like that God wants us to be a moral lifeguard for our area, our whole region, and for that matter, America. And so thank you for praying and inviting people to come next Sunday. Now, just as importantly, God says, not only are you saving them, but you're also saving yourself. Because if we don't even try to save someone who's drowning, there certainly is a moral guilt on our own soul. In the tragic Uvalde mass shooting a few weeks back, and while we don't have all the facts, it sure seems like to me somebody should have been held responsible for not doing something. Somebody should have done something at that shooting site. Well, that's why we're here today. We want to say we want to do something. We want to stand up wisely for the truth of God. And that's one of the greatest things you can do in all the world. Now, in this message, Jesus said there are two cautions, however, I want to give you. We need to have people who will see clearly enough to be a moral lifeguard, who will be a stander for truth. But there are two things I want you just to keep in your mind. Number one, not everybody is qualified to inform. Not everybody can be an informer. Not everybody can be a stander. Not everybody can actually give out the truth. And we'll see that in verses 3 through 5. How desperate this fake world is for things that are real and genuine and authentic. And yet standers, informers, those who might be guilty of the same faults, maybe by just a different name, are not likely to do much good. And that's why Jesus said, number one, consider your own issues candidly. Consider your own issues candidly. Let's look at verse 3 again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Consider it's not the beam that is in thine own eye. Now our Lord uses a absurd, laughable metaphor just to kind of capture their minds, liven things up a little bit. He said now, not that any of this ever happens, but he said that it's possible for a person who is around you to have a mote in their eye. Now, actually, if you look at the Greek meaning of that word, it just means a piece of straw or a twig. It actually comes from the old English word mite, M-I-T-E, which is a small little, uh, like a uh, coin, something very small. 
So we're talking about something small in somebody else's eye, and then a beam in your own eye. Now, a typical beam in the flat uh, Middle Eastern patio-type roof, which had a significant weight load, had to have a pretty good-sized beam. We're talking maybe 6 by 12, 6 by 18 or so. We're talking probably out of a timber, maybe like uh, oak or something like that. So Jesus said, now here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. Some strange dude comes up and he said, I want to get the speck out of your eye, but he has a big old giant uh, timber beam coming out of his own eye. He said, I would say that would probably be pretty distracting to us. We just aren't going to want to even listen to what they're saying. And so Jesus said, look, before you can be a standard for truth, before you can do that, you have to see clearly. And in order to see clearly, you have to get the beam out of your eye. Jesus said, or excuse me, Peter clarified the matter. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, he said, it is time that judgment begins at the house of God. It begins at the house of God. Now we all know that churches are clearly called to take the gospel message to the world. But the message is not likely to be received unless the, if the messengers are so distracting. Here's what Peter said. He said, you've got to get your house in order. And so he said, if you have uh, bits and beams out there, he, this suggests to me that then there must be a difference, even levels of issues that we face. If some things are bits and other things are beams, if some things are moats and some things are big giant boards, then what God is trying to tell us here is there are comparative situations. Some sins, while still sin, are comparatively but straw. Other sins would be beams. Now to be clear, there is no such thing as a little sin. For that to be true, then that would mean that there are little verses and big verses, or little truth and big truth. Now, what he's trying to point out is that even a little piece of straw or even a little sin can cause a big issue, a lot of pain, and can be quite dangerous. A little straw or a little uh, something in the eye can lacerate the cornea. It can actually affect everything you do. I mean, if you have something in your eye, you're pretty much not able to do anything very good. Certainly then, we should try to help people who have specks in their eyes. I mean, we're not, if they're just hurting them, it's dangerous. And so God wants us to do something about that. But let's dig a little deeper on this matter of levels of sin. Let's think back for a few moments, uh, a few uh, messages ago to Matthew chapter 5. You may remember that Jesus, uh, he equated committing adultery with having lust in your heart. However, that does not mean that lust in the heart and lust in the body are equal. What Jesus was trying to get across is this. These fake teachers are saying that it's only sin if you actually physically do it. And he was saying that's totally wrong. He's forcing them to reevaluate their life. He said, you need to know something. God just doesn't look at what you do physically. An omniscient God can see the heart. And he judges our thoughts as well as our actions. In another passage, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus proclaimed that what our hearts think is what comes out in our actions. You may remember Jesus said, for example, he said, wrath or 
just settled anger and murder are both sins. However, that does not mean that they're equal. It's far worse to actually murder a person than it is to have hatred in your heart. What, at the same time, while that's true, in regard to the eternal consequences to sin, they're both the same. Both physical murder and heart murder both will send us to hell. And they're equal in the sense that they both need to be forgiven. And so what Jesus is saying here about the motes and the beams is that, yes, sins can differ, but the results are both eternal and they both need to be taken care of. That's why the wise Paul in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 didn't separate out any sin as worthy of eternal death and others not. He said the wages of sin is death. All sin, any sin, every sin. He didn't say, well, this sin is worthy of death and this one is not worthy of death. And I'm thankful to be able to announce that, yes, while it's any sin is worthy of death, any sin can be forgiven, thank the Lord. And that's what God is saying here. Jesus paid the penalty for all sin. Jesus was simply trying to point out the fact that we need to take a look at ourselves first, do some self-evaluation, be candid about our own life so that we can be a help to this world. Several years ago in the State deployment officials in Tucson, Arizona, posted an interesting sign over a full-length mirror in their offices. It was directed to all the job hunters that were there. And above that full-length mirror was this sign, Would you hire this person? In another office, a mirror and a sign had this question, Are you ready for a job? They're trying to say, look, take a look at yourself, how you look, how you act, your attitudes. I'm not sure who said it first, but someone once said, man's capacity for self-deception is unlimited. And so Jesus said, now, if you're going to be a stander, if you're going to be a helper, if you're going to help this world with truth, you've got to, first of all, consider your own issues candidly. Number two, we have to consider others' issues charitably. Be loving when you look at others. Verse 4, How wilt thou say to thy brother, Let thy pull out thy mote out of thine own eye, and behold, a beam is in their own eye? What the Lord is simply trying to point out is, try to be harder on yourself than you are on others. When you're dealing with others, try to look for extenuating circumstances for especially good-willed people. The old Puritan once said, Be charitable and indulgent, to everyone but thyself. Yet the sad fact is, even in this plain, weird world of art, a person, it is so uh, much a fact that we see giant beams sticking out of people's eyes, and yet those very same people will go scorched earth on Twitter for everybody else for things that have, they have maybe specks in their eyes. You can only shake your head at the insanity that's going on in our current political arena. It is absolutely just crazy in your mind. It's tremendously demonic, morally corrupt to see a official of a state stand in front of a national TV promising, if you want to take the life of your child, you can not only come to our state, but we'll make it, as Luke said a moment ago, a sanctuary. In fact, we will pay your way to come to our state. And then we'll say at the same time that people who believe opposite or who are conservative or 
so forth, that they are divisive. They are undemocratic or they use salty language. I tell you what, the hypocritical bits and boards of humanity amaze me. Murder is okay as long as you're nice about it. That's what they're saying. Unbelievable. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, folks, this world is crazy what they consider right and wrong and what they do. And by the way, I do think this is a good moment to commend those courageous jurists who this week struck down the Holocaust of abortion. And I believe they deserve our appreciation today. Yes. But you see how the God of this world artfully just pulls a wool over people's eyes. No wonder that amazing Christian soldier, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 said, whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. They are absolutely blind. Blinded minds. Perfectly able to see with their eyes, but unable to comprehend because someone pulled the shade down in their mind. You may remember in the Gospels, the proud, vindictive, murdering even Pharisees, absolutely unloaded, went hysterical (laughs) on Christ's disciples. Why were they so upset with Christ's disciples? Because they were eating food without ceremonially washing their hands. They were there looking at those hands. I see a speck on those hands. I see a speck on those hands. At the same time, they were openly plotting the death of the most beautiful man that ever lived, Jesus Christ. How hypocritical. Consider our own issues candidly and then consider other issues charitably. And then number three, consider God's issues critically. That's what we need to do. Verse number five, we need to really sense what is God trying to get across? Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own eye, then thou shalt see clearly. We need some people who can see clearly. Why? So they can cast the moat out of their brother's eye. We need people to get the specks out of people's eyes. Whether they're bits or beams, they need to come out because they are just devastating. Now, our Lord takes a parenting strike at what the natural reaction would be to this kind of teaching. People will be saying, well, there you go. I have no business telling anybody else what to do. I'm just going to go in a corner. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm not going to stand on anything. I'm not going to be out there telling folks because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And so our Lord closes. He said, look, yes, we have to be careful, but somebody has to stand for the truth. Folks, if the only people who get to tell truth are people who've never sinned, then truth will never get out. Because the only people who can give the truth out are humans who've all sinned. But that doesn't mean we still shouldn't put out the truth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He was saying, yet the best way to accomplish that is by considering your own being. Remember back in verse 3, he said, consider. The word consider there actually is a word which means to really think about things in your own life, to meditate in a prolonged way. In Luke chapter 12, for example, you may remember Jesus said, consider the lilies. 
actually sit down and think about this and consider, as we sang a few moments ago, how good God has been to me. Take a good look. Look at the root cause, not just the surface actions. Because we may find that what we're going through, we have the same root cause as somebody else. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. He said, did you know that you're inexcusable? Oh, man, whoever judges, wrong judgment, for therein that thou judgest another, you condemn yourself. For thou that doest judges does the same things. What he was saying there in that passage was that he was trying to challenge the unbelieving Jews who were so proud of the fact that they had the oracles of God. They were, had Abraham as their father. They had this wonderful faith. But he said, well, all that's true. You are still not a born-again Christian. You've not accepted Christ. What he said was, you're complaining that the Gentiles don't have truth. But he said, really, what's the difference? They don't have truth and don't do it. You have the truth, but still don't do it. You're the same. You judge another, but you actually have the same root cause. The Holy Spirit burned down the Jewish mindset. He said, have you considered? Now let's go back to verse number five here. He said, now once you've stopped and you've considered, do I have the same root issues as somebody else? You know, we're complaining about this person doing that, this person doing that. Well, that's okay. But are we considering ourselves as well? Now, once we've considered that, then God said, here's what you need to do. Verse five, cast it out. Cast it out. Uh, that doesn't sound real velvet glove, does it? That means be direct, be decisive, get out there and take care of it. How do you do that? You judge yourself. We confess to the Lord. We say, Lord, that was just wrong. I've had a terrible, sinful, lustful, whatever attitude. Here's what the apostle warned first. Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. He said, if we'll judge ourselves, we then won't be judged. So let's sit down, look at our life and say, am I guilty of the same root sins, the root cause? Then once I've got that clear, I can go out and make a difference in this world. It may require us to take some def real definitive steps to change. It might require an apology. It might require some real restitution. It might require humbling ourselves and saying, I was wrong. But it's all worth it if I can make a difference. If I can, the big point, the big picture is, let's make a difference in this world. Yes, we've not always been as nice as we should. Yes, we've not done this or that. But the big picture is this world still needs the blessed word of God. It needs people who will stand for truth. And the ministry of standing for truth is so important. And then in verse number five, it says, And then, and then shalt thou see clearly. When? After you've cast it out, after we've considered ourselves, And then, once we've had some personal evaluation, once we've looked at that mirror and said, You know what? That's not good. I want to take care of that. Once we've done that, and then we can cast the moat out of our brother's eye. God wants us to be moat casters. He wants us to get out there and make a difference. That's not a mean thing. 
Let me tell you, if I got a speck in my eye, and several times my wife will take a little corner of a napkin or something, put some water on it, and kind of, I have something in my eye, she'll pull it out. I'm so thankful. I'm not mad at her. Now I might kind of push her out. Wait. But I'm so grateful that she's getting that moat out of my eye, that little speck that's in there, because it can be very dangerous, and it certainly is just uh, no fun. People say, well, I just have a belief, I just have a live and let live concept. Well, that's tragic. So you're going to let everybody have eye disease, have all this trouble when you could help them. God wants us to help people. Folks, it's not love to not help somebody. In fact, Moses told Israel, look at Leviticus chapter 19. This is a tremendous rule of involvement. He said in Leviticus 19 verse 17, don't hate your brother. Well, of course not. We don't want to hate our brother. Well, how would we hate our brother if you don't rebuke him? Love your neighbor. Make sure you tell him. And I don't think it's meaning that everybody we see some problem out there, we're supposed to go yell at him. That's not what that's saying. It's simply saying if their ox is in the ditch, you ought to help them get the ox out. If their soul is in the dark, I think, if we possibly can, we should try to help them. David was so concerned for his nation and for his family. And that's why he said in Psalm 51, verse 10, he said, God, create in me a clean heart. And then a few verses down, verse 13, then I can teach transgressors thy ways, thy ways. Lord, help me to get my own beams out of my eyes so that I could go out and help others. I can be free to be an agent of positive change. Folks, we live in a day of spiritually flabby snowflakes. And people say, oh, I don't want to appear intolerant or call people sinners. Folks, we need to be, have somebody be willing to get out there and tell some. It'd be like a doctor unwilling to tell a diabetic to be careful about their sugar intake because they're afraid of sugar shaming or something like that. Someone once said, old Jim was such a sweet person on the inside. It's a shame we didn't notice before the diabetes killed him. <laughs> but I think we ought to be willing to say, you know what? It is important to know the truth. Now, having said all that, verse 6 comes like a thunderbolt. Verse 6 is just a crazy verse, I must tell you. A amazingly important truth. Not everybody is qualified to inform. But strangely, not everybody is qualified to be informed. What? Yep, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, now look, we need to be truth givers. We need to be world changers. We need to be agents of change. Get out there and inform people. But not everybody needs to be informed or should be informed. Look at verse 6. Give not that which is holy to dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, you're going to need to ask the Holy Spirit right this moment for real understanding. And if you're a new believer, that might be a little challenging to your mind. But if you're a discerning believer, you're going to hear my words. This is advanced Christianity. This is college level Christianity. Now, dogs in those days were not little, nice-smelling, painted nails, rhinestone collars, funny little sweaters. 
The U.S. is going goo-goo on pets today, over $100 billion, in fact, as the picture shows. There's even places you can take your dog to that takes their, does their nails. I even saw advertised the other day a six-pack of Bowser beer. <laughs> I saw a lady, a thin lady, as she was, pushing a fat little dog, I think it was a pug, in a baby carriage. Um, maybe they should have changed places, I'm not sure, but I will say this. Back then, this was not the kind of dogs they had. Dogs were mostly working dogs, trained for the sheep. But feral dogs in the cities were mongrels, nasty, aggressive scavengers. They were just nasty creatures, unclean. That's why Jesus said, don't give that which is holy to the dogs. Now, what are things that are holy? Well, holy things were things that they brought to the temple. When a person would come to the temple, they would bring their tithes and offerings. They would bring a sacrifice. It could be a lamb, could be a dove if they weren't rich enough to have a lamb, or a bullock if they were on the high side. Whatever the case, they would present it to the Lord. Now, the way that those sacrifices worked is you'd give the main part to be burnt on the sacrifice altar. A portion of that would be given to the priest and his family. But in no case at all would your sacrifice simply be given to the dogs. Now, they might give some of the bones and scraps after all that is taken care of, but they would never take that which is holy or that which is the offering or the tithe and give it to the dogs. Never. That would be a desecration. Jesus said, everybody knows you don't give a holy sacrifice to a bunch of wild dogs. It is not meant for them. In other words, the Lord is saying not everybody is really qualifies to be informed. And then he gives a second illustration. Neither would you throw pearls to swines. Because first, they would trample it under their feet and don't appreciate it. And second of all, they actually may turn on you. And if you get too close, they'll tear you up. Now, pigs in those days weren't as quite as domesticated as some of ours are here today. All pigs, you've got to be careful for, I'm sure. Now, my cousin lived in a high-rent district of called Chatsworth in Southern California, basically a mansion she lived in. Years ago, I visited her. You can imagine my surprise when I walked into this Better Homes and Garden kitchen only to see a little pot-bellied pig walking in that kitchen there. And uh, I named that little pig Bacon Bits. But anyway, um, let, me just, let me just tell you that the pigs, the hogs that they had in Jesus' day were no pot-bellied pigs, with little dresses on. They were some nasty pigs, and if you got too close to them, they could tear you up. Now, Jesus said, anybody knows you don't give pearls. One pearl from the Indian Ocean would be like a lifetime savings to them. Nobody would take a valuable pearl and have a crazy feral hog or dog eat it up or trample it. Nobody would do that. The whole point of this is this, don't waste precious things on, and like time and energy and money on those who don't value it, don't appreciate it, and in fact will attack you. In hogs, I see three, or excuse me, in scripture, I see three types of uh, dogs and hogs. Number one, the scorner. Now, typically, the disciples, as a rule, would preach the gospel to anybody who would listen. 
In fact, even our Lord Jesus at the announcement of His ministry said, in Luke 4 and verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How? Why? To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering in the sight of, to the blind. So really, for us to preach, we have to preach to blind people. We have to preach to people who are sinful. Jesus preached to publicans and harlots and drunks, you name it. In fact, the Bible says that the poor heard him gladly, but that's the point. They heard him gladly. Now, dogs and hogs don't hear gladly. They remain and love to be obstinate, stubborn, even after the gospel has been repeatedly preached to them. Simply what Jesus is saying here is be a standard for truth, be one who can give out the gospel, but don't just lose so much time and effort working on the same person after they've been so obstinate and they hate God. Now, if I could be transparent for just a moment, I've had the distinct sense in 40 years, but I could even say 50 years, of knocking on thousands of doors evangelizing. At times, I would leave the door after having offered this pe these people who clearly need God in their life, after having offered them the solution to their soul sickness, and they just simply have no appetite for them. And I've had the sensation many a time as I was walking away from that door. I mean, I wouldn't say I heard a voice, but I would tell you almost in my spirit, it's like God said they're dogs. They're hogs. Now, I don't mean any disrespect. I'm just saying there's a sense that the Holy Spirit just said, dust your feet, walk on, because those people will not receive the gospel, at least at this moment. They're so involved in their sin or whatever, they are scorners. And that's why David said in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, he said, blessed is a person when you don't walk in the way of sinners, because then after they walk in that way for so long, they then just sit down and they become a scorner. In my book, Marriage God's Way, I give three characteristics of a scorner. Let me give you the, those very quickly. Number one, they pretend not to understand. Proverbs 14 and verse number six. A scorner seeketh wisdom, but finds it not. Knowledge is easy to them that understand it. Now, why can't a scorner find wisdom? Well, it's like a criminal trying to find a policeman. They don't want to find. That's why. They don't get it because they don't want to get it. Number two, they avoid spiritual people. A scorner, Proverbs 15, 12, loves not one that reproves him. Neither will he go to the wise. You would think someone would appreciate the opportunity to grow, to get knowledge, to become better, to be different. But oh no, they remind me of what financial peace evangelist Dave Ramsey says about people who simply won't take the steps to get out of debt. He said, they remind me of a little toddler sitting in a messy diaper. They know it smells and it's terrible, but it's warm and it's there. So they're going to sit there. And unfortunately, that's the way a scorner is. They're sitting in their messy diaper and they know that something's not right, but they like it. These are the kind of people that say, oh, spiritual things are not fun. They're boring. They'd rather go out to the lake than to go to church on Sunday. That's a scorner. A scorner does not like spiritual things. They just have no appetite for it. Number three, they have an attitude. 
Proverbs 21 and verse 24, proud and haughty scorner, scorner is his name, who dealeth in proud wrath. God said their attitudes are so terrible, they deal in it. They're like a car dealer. <laughs> oh, I got wrath today for you. And uh, got a deal on it. A dealer of disrespect. I will tell you, folks, if that's not a good illustration of what I see in the world today, absolutely a dealers of disrespect. It seems like they, some of these people on the Twitter and on the media wake up every morning just seeing how disrespectful they can be to God and Christians and anything holy. Well, you can know that person is a scorner. Now, there are three types of people, I believe, that are not qualified to be informed. Number one, the scorner. Number two, the scheming. The scheming. Dogs are crazy. I mean, they will even bite the very hand that feeds them. They attempt to comfort them and they'll bite them. That's exactly what Paul said about some people in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1. He said, I couldn't even talk to you because you're carnal. <laughs> you're going to chew on me. I, I couldn't even speak to you. By the way, don't go to a church where they don't give the truth. You don't want that kind of a church. If they won't speak to you because you're carnal, that's not good. You want somebody who will speak the truth to you, who will give it to you. May God help us to be people who are willing to receive it. Proverbs chapter, or excuse me, Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 32 said how it works. He said in verse 7, some people sit around devising wicked. The next verse, other people sit around and devise liberal things or good things. It's kind of all about what they sit around scheming about. Have you ever thought about in the New Testament how patient Jesus was with Peter who did some pretty crazy things? Or how understanding he was with Thomas and his doubts? He was understanding because they weren't schemers. They weren't scorners. Now, yes, they had some issues. Yes, they had some problems. Yes, they had some beams even if you want to say. But they weren't a schemer. They weren't scorners. And yet not one single word. He wouldn't even speak to Herod and Tippus. Why? Because he had a scheming heart. He had a scorner's heart. Jesus said, I'm not casting pearls before you. No way. You'll just rend it. I'll be honest with you. I've been in situations, surprisingly so even, people who would claim to be Christians, and yet anytime you would give them a verse or some truth, they just totally disregard it or they just get, they get so angry about it. I thought, you know what? It's at those moments I just pull back and say, okay. And I then pull back, won't even give them anything. And then from that point forward, basically our only conversation is about the weather. How tragic to live with somebody who you could actually give them the word of God. And yet they don't want it. They'll be happy just to talk about the weather. A scorner's heart, a schemer's heart. But there's one more hog and dog that have logs in their eyes. And that is the scurrilous. It's an old word, but it's a good word here. Plain, venomous, abusive people who are haters. Jesus now turns the table in the end. In verse 6, he said, look, I'm concerned for your safety. 
I don't want you to spend all your time with a hog and then they turn around and they rend you to pieces. He said, I'm concerned about your personal safety. It's one thing to evangelize, it's another to jeopardize. It's an interesting passage in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, fitting from the wise Solomon. Maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never really realized what he was saying. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16. Be not righteous over much. What? What? Don't be too righteous? What? Don't make thyself overwise. What are you saying? Well, it'd be like something like this, saying, look, it's good to fast. Yes, you should fast. But you can't fast for 60 days straight. You're going to kill yourself. That's being overly righteous. It's not wrong to fast. It's wrong to destroy your health and your family's livelihood and your marriage over fasting. Don't be overly righteous. Or maybe let's say you live in a home, you have a landlord and they live an immoral lifestyle and you want to give the truth to them. Well, you may be careful about doing that because they may throw you out on your ear and then you don't have a home for your family. Don't be overly righteous at the wrong time. Self-preservation is a law of God. Many people have the idea that Christians should be pacifists or that having guns is evil. Let me assure you, the doctrine of self-defense runs from Genesis to Revelation. No wonder the wise framers of our America's Constitution included the Second Amendment. Let me tell you what Jesus said about going and getting a weapon. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 36, we're talking about Jesus now. Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, he would be saying the same thing today, if you don't have a gun... If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. What? Jesus telling his followers to go buy a sword? Now, let me be quick to say, he wasn't saying, I want everybody to go Rambo and start slicing and dicing everybody. He's just simply saying, you do have a right to self-defense. The days are coming where you might have a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. You may have to protect your family. Brothers and sisters, God is saying that there's some tragic and some scary times are coming. And now God needs people who will stand up for the truth. People who will be prudent and be wise and who will be not only truth speakers, but will be ones that will be able to be heard, heard because their lifestyles are such that they're not distracting to the message. Look. The fact of the matter is, all of us have sins, we all have errors, we all have problems, but we want to be people who can stand for the truth and make a difference in this world. I like what Dr. Adrian Rogers, the late pastor, a great Baptist pastor there in Memphis, Tennessee, he said, it's better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts then kills. It's better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved or telling a lie. It's better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. It's better to ultimately succeed with truth than to temporarily succeed with a lie. And now here's the question before we leave. Is there something in your life that as Jesus said, 
might hinder you from being someone who stands for truth? Is there something you need to cast out? That word is pretty direct and decisive. It's not something you go to think about. That means right now. Is there something in your life that maybe is a speck, a bit, bits and boards, whatever they are, may they come out? Today is the day to get things square with God so that we can be a positive agent for change. And that's the message. We maybe call it logs, dogs, and hogs. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. And now it's on us. What will we do? How will we take this message? May God help us to be those that care about this world. By the way, just the fact that you're here in church, just the fact that you are involved and you give is a great statement that you want to make a difference for truth in this world. And I commend you for that. We're going to stand, if you would, to our feet, please. Everybody standing here this morning, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Our worship team is going to sing a great chorus. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, holy and clean and ready. Lord, get the moats out of my eyes, the little bits. Get the beams, get the boards. I want to be a standard for truth. I want somebody who helps others lovingly, carefully. Being one who qualifies to inform. And being wise and decisive about how we share the truth. There's so much more this passage brings forth, but hopefully it'll be enough for us to pray about. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Now here's the first truth. Do you know that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Are you 100% sure? If you are, praise God. If not, pray this prayer. If you mean it, dear Jesus, be merciful and be a lost sinner. And then after that, Lord, I just right now want to have a pure heart. I want to have the kind of lifestyle that makes a difference in this world. I know I'm not perfect, but Lord, I want to make a difference out there. I want to be an agent for change for God. And so we're going to begin to pray and then we're going to sing. And as is our custom here. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.